Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 17. Thank you for this journey, 17 episodes into the season. I have really enjoyed the conversations. I hope you have too. I've tried to bring a diversity of thinking and guests to you this season. Uh, We've really tried to be thoughtful and strategic about that because we want to bring you conversations you may not have heard before, thinking that you are fresh and new with And that's what we're hearing in feedback. So uh, drop us a message, you know, like, subscribe. We'd love for you to give us a rating. It helps other people find this podcast, but it also is just a huge encouragement to the team. So thanks so much for joining on this. If you want to join further, join us in the Digital Church Facebook group. We would love to have you there. It's a free group where we're collaborating, we're sharing ideas, thinking, asking questions all around the world about this conversation about how to do digital church, how to do that creatively, how to do that strategically, how to do discipleship and evangelism in a digital world. So we'd love for you to join us. And if you haven't checked out the digital, uh, so the Word Made Digital tutorials, we've got a whole series of tutorial content again to train you. It's all free. Go to wordmadedigital.com and check it out. Okay, today on the podcast, I'm really pumped to have Rich Villadas. He's a pastor, author, speaker. He's Brooklyn born, and he's the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship. It's a large multiracial church uh, it's got more than 75 countries represented and it's in Queens. So he has, you know, lots of education behind him, but he really enjoys writing and thinking around contemplative spirituality and justice issues. So uh, you want to lean into this episode because as Danielle Strickland, um, you know, a colleague of mine talks about, she describes Rich Philodos's new book as the new celebration of discipline. That's like an older generation's book, but, but this book, he, she describes it as the new version of celebration of discipline because it deals with issues of justice, uh, you know, going to therapy. It talks about sexual wholeness and all that kind of stuff. So can't wait to dive in today. And of course, wouldn't be able to do it without our sponsors like Wycliffe College. This is an evangelical seminary. It's a school of theology at the University of Toronto. So you're going to get a degree if you go there from both the University of Toronto, which is a one of the top universities in the world, but also Wycliffe College, which is one of the top seminaries in the world at one of the top universities. So all the same, it's a robust and rewarding academic experience, but also just you meet the most amazing people if you go there. My time there was rich. I mean, I have friends literally around the world now. I might introduce you to some of them on the podcast soon, you know, whether it's in East Asia or in South Asia or it's in Africa, South America, Europe. North America, there's students who have come from everywhere and it's a rich and um, just like a, a, a rich environment to learn and to grow. So if you're thinking about taking a course or you want a certificate, maybe you want a whole degree, you want to do even doctoral studies, consider Wycliffe College. Go to wycliffecollege.ca slash digital. And hey, if you stop by the website and let them know, they want to send you some free swag. And uh, swag is fun because it gets some free stuff in the mail. Why not? Hey, I also want to talk to you about Compassion Canada because you've probably heard about child sponsorship and maybe you think maybe it's sort of out of date or isn't it kind of old school, but Compassion Canada has helped to rewrite the story of extreme poverty 
through their revolutionary version of child sponsorship. Their model is a little bit different because they work exclusively with the global church. Compassion is dedicated to lifting children out of poverty in all of its forms. And that's why they're changing the way development works and takes place. So no, child sponsorship isn't just for your grandma or isn't just like an old school way of doing things. It's going to impact a child and it's going to impact you. So through the relationship of the local church, caring for that sponsor child in the local community, they're actually beginning to flourish in mind, body, and spirit. It's a holistic view and a long-term view of care for that child in their own community. Visit compassion.ca slash good for more info. Maybe you want to check out a little bit more. You want to do some research or you actually think it's finally time. I need to do something like this in 2021. Go to compassion.ca slash good. And of course, as always, the link is in the show notes. All right, going into our conversation with Rich Villadasra, the troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without actually being deeply formed by Christ. We're going to talk about that. Here's a conversation with Rich Villadas. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada, and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Rich Velotis, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm uh, I'm really pumped to have you on the podcast today. Well, thanks, Joanna. Look forward to a really good conversation with you. Um, you are the the guy who seems to know about how to do spiritual formation in the 21st century. I mean, <laughs> I guess you're the guy. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know. I'm curious to know how how this kind of became. Let's as just a means of introduction. How did this become a really a, a centering topic of your life's work? Why do you care about about this? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I became a Christian uh, some 22 years ago. I'm 41 years old, so as a 19 year old, became a Christian. And uh, my Christian experience was first formed by the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, and, but, but I had a grandfather who attended that church that I became a Christian in, uh, very, uh, radically about 15 family members on one night became followers of Christ. Wow. And he gave me such a love for the scriptures and for prayer and for the spiritual formation practices that have come to the, uh, define my life. And as I mentioned before, our call, I'm in Queens, New York city. So if you hear sirens and ambulance driving by here, that's, this is just my normal everyday experience, which uh, which I appreciate because I'm trying to live a contemplative life in the middle of a very busy city. So, yes. Uh, but it started there. My first few years were very formative. Uh, I was introduced to uh, the Pentecostal tradition. That's the church I became a Christian in. But then maybe two years later, I uh, through a class in college, a spiritual formation class, was exposed to the monastic contemplative tradition. Uh, and we had we went to a weekend retreat at a monastery and learned about silence and solitude. And then a couple of years after that, I was introduced to more of the larger 
uh, justice and a, just a global theology. So within the first five years of becoming a Christian, I found myself just by God's grace uh, immersed uh, immersed in all of these various traditions. And so from the very uh, onset of my journey, I've been fascinated with how does Christ get formed in us mm. in ways that are uh, uh, comprehensive and multifaceted, uh, not just talking about prayer, but our engagement in the world. So that's how we got started for me. I love that. I mean, and I asked the question, you know, I started the question sort of with some sarcasm because uh, about, you know, you're the guy to talk to about spiritual formation, because I think, uh, you know, the very nature of what you're trying to do is this, as you say, like a modern monastic, um, you know, a push away, a shy away from the celebrity church culture, all that kind of stuff. So I was just sort of teasing to see your reaction to what I would say. Um, you wrote an article about this issue, though, around, it was a few years ago, around celebrity pastors, but Unfortunately, it's so timely again. There's another number of mm. names. It, it's every few months. It, there's no point in naming the names because every few months it's somebody's somebody else's name of you know yeah. the public yeah. implosion that affects not just themselves, their family, the ministry that they lead, um, the finances of that ministry, people's jobs are affected. Mm -hmm. you know, so much has gone on beyond just the, their sin itself, uh, how it ripples yeah. out. The so, of the church. Yep. Yeah. So um, t talk to us a little bit about that. Um, if you, I know that article is now two years old, but you just reposted it again recently about these questions that leaders should ask themselves to kind of get away from mm -hmm. this celebrity culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. And, you know, I, I would I would just say whether a church is 10,000 people or 100 people, um, th there is something about power and something that that lurks within uh, many of us, if not all of us. Uh, and so it, so this is not just a megachurch thing, uh, although it probably finds a uh, supporting cultures uh, within larger structures because of the level of power and influence that they have. But I've met plenty of people who have been pastors of very large churches and were very humble and accessible and held accountable. Uh, and then I've seen pastors of churches of 100 people who were not humble uh, and did not have any structures of accountability. So for me, in wrestling with that, I recognize within myself my um, desire to be autonomous. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't like people telling me what to do, Joanna. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to ask permission uh, for things here and there. I want to do whatever I want to do. At the same time, I recognize uh, that's going to get me in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, and so some of the questions that I ask in light of just, we're talking about power and authority here, is beyond just the interior questions of, how am I perceiving myself? Uh, is there anything beneath me uh, that, um, you know, any task, any people, anything that I think is beneath me uh, because I want to push back entitlement? Uh, are, are there any people around me that I have to check in with, uh, whether it's a board, whether it's advisors or such? So uh, this is a pervasive issue. And I think it needs to be addressed from an individual, from an interpersonal, and from a uh, systemic, uh, institutional, wherever you want to call it, just structural uh, perspective. But uh, pastors need all the help they can get because of the ways that power can be 
misused, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, within that, I'm, I'm thinking about, so, oh, there's so much, there's so much in your book. I feel like, uh, it's almost like there's more questions than I can kind of get to in, you know, the limits of our time today. But one of the, one of the things you talk about in, in the later chapter of the book, deeply formed mission. And I want to read these words to you mm -hmm. in relation to this idea of the celebrity pastor, deeply formed mission, patience, empathy, curiosity, mm. discernment, service, justice, invitation, non-coercive behavior. Um, so that list um, doesn't feel typically like the list of criteria a church is when they're hiring a senior leader. Those aren't mm. usually high on the list. Not th Those are good things, but um, that the <laughs> things on the list of you know hiring criteria are often quite mm. different than that list. Um, so uh, yeah. how do you, I mean, you have a, you work in a team setting. How, how do you decide, uh, who gets to lead or, or what you're looking for in a leader? For us in our context, and this is a culture that I inherited. So I mm -hmm. can't say I created this culture. I'm glad to have inherited from my predecessor, uh, Pete Scazzaro, who, uh, many folks know from the emotionally healthy world. Um, to, to be, to come to new life and to thrive at new life as a leader, really the prerequisite more than anything else is brokenness and vulnerability. Hmm. Um, wow. our willingness to be honest about our past, about our ways that our family of origin has shaped us in ways that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus and his kingdom, uh, our ability to be, um, uh, on the journey towards uh, appropriate self-disclosure and brokenness and openness, that's what's going to get someone uh, through the door at New Life, and that's what's going to make someone thrive as a leader at New Life. And whether that is a person who is on our pastoral team, uh, who our administrative team, our elder board, our deacon board, our small group leaders, ultimately... Uh, we, it's, it's, it is character before gifting for us. And I am very tempted to look at the gifts. Uh, I'm very tempted to see, oh, look at that singer. Look at that musician. Wow. Look at that communicator. Uh, but one of the things that we've learned over the 33 years of being a church community is when, when gifting leads the way, uh, before character, we're going to find ourselves in a lot of, um, very dangerous situation. So for us, uh, it is brokenness. And I would just say, not everyone feels comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, and so this, this is not an imposition of, hey, if you're not sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with us uh, on a regular basis, you can't be a pastor here. It's not that. Uh, but we want to see, are, are you willing to progressively uh, be more open about the ways that you've been shaped and the, the ways that you are failing and, and the ways that you still need healing. And if we can do that, um, you're, you're going to really make it in this, in this culture of ours, in this church. If not, you're going to have a hard time. 
Yeah, you know what? It's reminding me of uh, Simon Sinek, uh, uh, a thinker on business mm-hmm. and how, you know, he's the guy who says start with why, or he made it famous anyways. I just was listening to something recently from him around how the military chooses people for high, high level tactical, like the most serious work that needs to be done, I don't know, in the world. I'm I, not a military family, I have no idea some of the lingo they're using, but the, the general principle that they say is that how do they ch- choose the few, very, very few men or women who would be chosen mm. for those, you know, Ill- most elite positions? And long story short, um, skill is very low on the list, but trust, mm. does the team trust you, is very, very high. It's mm. like the most important factor. So they said they um, mm. they choose for these positions and who's going to lead in these roles, often people who are um, not the most skilled. Um, but have high, right. high trust. Uh, everyone in that room knows this person's got your back. This person would literally, I mean, in the military's case, quite literally, they will die for you. Um, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to someone who has the most academic experience, you know, the most, you know, whatever, skill set, the most muscle, whatever they need, um, that those are not the yeah. criteria. So we have lots to learn, you know, I think from, you know, <laughs> this is a life or death situation uh, yeah. for some of them. So something for us to learn that's for sure but often not how yeah. people are chosen for leadership and, and 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 sadly in the church as well i mean if there's if there's a place where trust and character should lead the way uh it should be uh our congregations uh, among christians sadly uh again the the temptation to determine leadership and position and authority often begins and sadly ends with one's level of skill and gifting um, or anointing if whatever context you're coming from. Uh, but it is character before gifting. That This is what we continue to learn in our context. Yeah, I often think too, another sort of piece of this is people talk about how like it's lonely at the top. Leadership is a very lonely experience. Um, but, but, I would suggest that friendship or who our friends are would be a significant indicator into our ability to to lead. Do you want to say anything about about that in your context about friendship and loneliness um, for leaders, or how you how do you yeah, cultivate you know, friendship? Yeah, for for me, uh, I recognize the complexity of of what my predecessor would call you know dual relationships within staff settings where in one sense I'm their pastor, another sense I'm their boss, and things can get very confusing. And, um, and yet at the same time, I'm friends with people who are on staff. What I've recognized as a leader is, and, and I, 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 this is fresh on my mind because in 2018, at the end of 2017, early 2018, I realized I needed people on the journey with me who were, who were in a very similar uh, stage of life uh, in a very similar role. And so I, I reached out to a good friend of mine who's a pastor in another, in another part of our country and, and said, hey, what if we met once a month for 90 minutes and maybe we could invite, uh, you invite a friend and I'll invite a friend, so it's four of us, and let's see how it goes for, for six months. Now, we're on our third year doing this huh. once a month. With the same group. Uh, 90 minutes. The, the four of us, yep. yeah. Uh, we meet via Zoom and we talk about uh, what, what, where are the points of anxiety uh, that you're facing? What 
feedback do you need of regarding an issue that you're trying to work through or discern? Uh, what are you learning? What, what books are you reading? Uh, how can we pray for one another? So having that regular rhythm of people who know what it's like to, um, to, carry, to make hard decisions and have people uh, unhappy with you, to preach particular messages and, and get some choice emails. Uh, I know I needed it for my own sake of um, my loneliness as mm-hmm. well as just needing someone who could identify. So I've been in that and for leaders, for pastors, uh, in any uh, form of leadership, that is such a gift for the sake of our own sustainability over the years. Yeah. Well, and just as you say, there's, you're touching into, um, the, the emails or the letters you get around, uh, I don't know, people who may not like what you have to say. There's lots of feedback. Um, recently, (laughs) recently there was this major sort of news in the U S uh, storming of the Capitol. And then, uh, you spoke about that, um, soon Mm -hmm. after, like within days you, I'm curious to know yeah. your um, was there another message prepared that you postponed? Like, how did you decide to speak about that, and how do you decide what to say? How did you figure out what to say about that? <laughs> it's oh, such a contentious I issue. Some, I got some choice emails from that one. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, what happened was uh, uh, when when the, when the storming of the Capitol insurrection, whatever word people use, um, on January sixth. Uh, first of all, on that Wednesday, my jaw just dropped. So it was, it was very surreal just to see what was happening. Uh, but by 24 hours later, uh, typically whenever there are uh, national moments of whether it's violence or um, some disruption in our nation, I often, uh, b- between the sermon and the singing portion of our service, often off, you know, offer a, a three to five minute pastoral reflection um, and so I was thinking maybe I should just do a pastoral reflection on how do we navigate through this. But by the end of Thursday, I was thinking, I think some of the issues here are much deeper than a pastoral reflection. And as a pastor, I started just noticing things from, you know, folks on social media who, who are part of our congregation, who are wonderful people, uh, but seem to be uh, regurgitating or echoing some, uh, what I found to be problematic ideologies. Uh, and so whether it was related to, uh, charismatic prophecies about, uh, who the next president should be, who God Hmm. wants to be the president to, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, by Thursday, I said, I have to change my entire sermon, uh, which, it's a very painful thing to do. I, I, I wish all of the crises that happen would happen on Monday, you know, so I, at least, okay. Can we just schedule Monday? So that as a pastor, I have the rest of the week to think about this here. Uh, so I had a couple of days and the way I framed it for me, the most natural way of framing it and serendipitously, what was nice about that is I was thinking baptism is the way to go. Uh, my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. It just so happened that that Sunday uh, in the liturgical calendar, uh, was, uh, celebrating the baptism of Jesus. Mm. So I just thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, but I, I talked about baptism, our allegiance to Christ, uh, what it means to, uh, be identified with him and what are dangers to our baptism. Now I've been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. So, uh, it was, it was somewhat, it wasn't too hard for me to string together what I saw as 
pastoral dangers. But even so, it was very difficult for some people to, to hear that because uh, it, it can come across partisan when some things are, are named, regardless mm-hmm. of the spirit in which it's done. So, uh, but that, but that's, that's how it went down over here for in our congregation. Well, and I, you know, in my work in pastoral ministry, I've often likened the pastor to a politician in the sense that um, often in many churches, they have elected you to be their leader. They, they pay mm. your salary. And then if they don't like you, they can effectively remove you, <laughs> which is true in any job. If, if you're, you know, if people aren't happy yeah. with you doing yeah. the job, they, you can be removed. But um, do you feel that way? Um, do you feel yourself to, when you're making those decisions about what to speak about, um, how do you get, garner the courage? Uh, or maybe you it know, isn't. Maybe you don't feel courageous at all. I'm not sure. No, I, 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 I think part of it, honestly, is my own naivete of this whole thing. I have some friends that are going, "Are you crazy?" And I think the, I think God is blocking something in my way of thinking. <laughs> but if I saw the big picture, I'd go, "What am I doing? This is crazy." So, so I do think God is blocking something. I don't know because I don't, I don't think about this as courage. I think about this as formation. I think mm-hmm. about this as faithfulness to Jesus Christ. I think about this as worship and discipleship. So for me, if I, if I see something that is compromising the witness of the church, whether it's nationally, locally, uh, I, I feel burdened to say, uh, let's follow Jesus a little closer here. And what that requires us is to say no to uh, the, the ways of the world and the pattern of this age. Uh, so you know, I, I don't think about it too much. Now, I have to say, I do know when I say these things that emails are coming. I do know that people are going to be, some people are going to be very disappointed, uh, very bothered. Uh, so I know that. But there's also my own conscience as well as a pastor. Uh, and I'll be the first to say, in 2016, when, 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 when Donald Trump got elected, uh, there was so much unawareness I had about the congregation I'm leading. I would say probably 30 35% voted for uh, Trump in 2016, and, and I would probably say 2020. Uh, I... I didn't know that until afterward because I was a bit reckless with my words on social media about him. And I hurt people. I I marginalized people because there's so much emotional enmeshment as it pertains to politics and faith and spirituality that to critique the president is to really critique an individual. So I I didn't know that. So I hurt a lot of people. Uh, So I've been a lot more discerning over the years, but... I have to pay attention to my conscience as well. So, but I'm not. I'm not thinking about it as oh, I'm doing a big thing here. For me, I'm just trying to be faithful to Jesus yeah. and help people to follow Him more faithfully. Uh, yes, you talk about uh, intellectual formation is tied to spiritual formation, and I'm I'm bringing this up here mm. because it's this idea of shallow thinking um, can create some of these polar polarizations politically Mm -hmm. and many other things that's again that's shallow in and of itself there are more there's more complication to why we are polarized 
politically. But talk to me a little bit about um, intellectual formation and and what that means. And you know, not everyone's probably going to seminary. So, <laughs> what do people do about that? Yeah, you know, when I when I think about intellectual formation, first of all, for me, this is an act of worship, uh, and so. To, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength speaks to the holistic and comprehensive nature of, of worship and our relationship to God. Uh, and so in certain contexts, uh, evangelical, Pentecostal, there is this uh, often these dichotomies and these hierarchies uh, where uh, knowledge puffs up and to to think intellectually is somehow to not have uh, uh, the right heart or the right spirit. For me, uh, that's unnecessary, you know, for kind of the language I use is formational compartmentalization, uh, where this is, to follow Christ requires me to offer my entire being to him, and and that requires my thinking as well. And so by intellectual formation, for me, it is an act of worship, but it is, it's, as a Christian, it is the ability uh, and the process of thinking theologically. And what I mean by that is not just looking for a verse here or there, but to be able to, over time and with patience and diligence and study, uh, be able to knit together larger themes of faith uh, and, to, uh, and to correlate that with what we're seeing in our world. So for me, to think theologically about what happened in the Capitol, for example, uh, and trying to bring my intellectual gifts to the surface, uh, I, I've been thinking about larger themes of what does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean to be faithful to God? Uh, and so I'm pulling these things out, but that comes out of lots of hours of what are the major theological themes that I need to pay attention to. Uh, and so someone who wants to go on that journey, I think it's over time. I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been studying the scriptures in formal ways, informal ways, seminary, you know, all that stuff for, you know, for 22 years. So, I've, so I, someone who just is on the journey is going to take some time. Um, but I do think it's a matter of thinking theologically. And then lastly, I, I do think the question for me of my intellectual formation is, if I believe that all truth is God's truth, and I believe that, that truth wherever it can be found is God's, and that to believe in some aspect of truth is not necessarily to buy into a wholly a paradigm or a worldview or religion, what have you, uh, I, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time here where we can say that is true, although I'm not buying into the entire paradigm of that way of thinking. So for me, I'm trying to learn from as many people as I possibly can. Uh, I'm trying to live an intellectually, um, a, a, a life of integrity intellectually, and that means paying attention to truth wherever, wherever it can be found. So I read broadly. Uh, I am exposing myself out to traditions uh, throughout the Christian faith, and wherever truth can be found otherwise, uh, I, I want to learn from it as well. So for me, that's intellectual formation. Now... That's really, oh, there's so much in there. Just as a practical next step from what you've just said, there's so much there. Uh, Do you have an example of a book that you would recommend that is not a Christian book that you have gained truth from? Um, Is there a business book or a 
I don't know, Aristotle, I don't know, wherever it may be. Do you have a book that you would say, try this one? <laughs> or maybe not a book, yeah, maybe a uh, podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly within the, the, the business world, um, you know, as, as a leader, me trying to lead a large congregation, a very complicated congregation because of its diversity, uh, and, you know, whether it's thinking through uh, strategic planning and such. So certainly on that end, yeah. Um, um, whether it's novels that I'm reading that, that help to, um, uh, you know, wh whether it's the Harry Potter stuff that I'm reading or whether it is, uh, that's just fresh in my mind because I'm, I'm just reading the series again. So it's on my <laughs> nightstand here. So, uh, um, but, but books that I've recently, I mean, there's plenty of books that I've read on, whether it's on sociology and race, for example, uh, how do we think through from a sociological perspective the, the racial moment we find ourselves in? You're not going to find the Bible verse in there at all, uh, but uh, you're going to find lots of truth. Uh, and then for some people, very practically, you know, there, there's some in the evangelical Pentecostal charismatic world, uh, and I'm not sure exactly who, you're, uh, who the primary listener is for you, Joanna, but to even think, wow, truth can be found with our Catholic brothers and sisters. Truth can be found with our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. For that, for some people, that's a big jump uh, to be able to read someone from a Roman Catholic uh, tradition. Uh, so for me, very practically, those are some of the ways that I'm seeking to follow Jesus uh, and, and see truth from all kinds of perspectives. Well, you mentioned... Um, since we're still sort of circling this conversation, you mentioned the word racism. So the question I want to bring next is from your book, you talk about why friendship and evangelism won't fix or won't solve racism. We can't friend it away or make people a bunch of Christians and they'll all be anti-racist. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that idea? You know, that's the classic way of trying to uh, eradicate racism uh, conversions and friendships. If we can just get enough people to be saved and follow Jesus, um, and a you know, classic racism white will response. be eradicated. Oh, I have a black friend. Say it again. A classic white person's response. Oh, right. oh I have a black friend. Right. I, I just, have I just, a it, friend. If from we this just had enough cross-cultural friendships, yeah. this thing will come to an end. What uh, the the limit with that? The severe limit with that is not recognizing. Uh, the, the pervasive and all-encompassing nature of racism, that it is individual, interpersonal, and institutional. Uh, and so to, for it to be properly addressed uh, in our institutions, in our local churches, in our businesses, in our schools, in our government, uh, in law enforcement, requires uh, a multifaceted approach to it. So I need to be able to uh, address it individually. How have I been formed to see people who have who look different than I do, who have darker skin than I do, who come from this part of the world? How, what are the messages? What are the ways that I have created internal hierarchies of value uh, that often get externalized? Uh, the interpersonal aspect. What, what does it mean to relate to those different? How do I live from a place of curiosity and humility and incarnation? Uh, how do I ask more questions? And, and, and seek to be a listening presence. But it usually stops right there. But then there are the larger structural. And the reason as a Christian why I pay attention to this is because I have a high theology of sin. Uh, and I believe because I believe what the Bible says about sin 
that it is pervasive and sin is not just something that's related to our own individual lives. Sin has a way of, of, of its tentacles uh, grasping onto all kinds of uh, places in life, in the ways that policies are shaped, in the ways that power is used. So if racism is not addressed from that larger structural, institutional, systemic perspective, but we'll have our really nice dinners uh, with people who look different than we do, uh, really nice services where we're doing some foot washing or inviting the black preacher to come and the white preacher's preaching in the black church. And, and these things are wonderful, but the larger power structures um, that give advantage to some and disadvantages to others are not touched. And um, as a Christian, uh, you know, how do we engage faithfully in all of these areas? Uh, that's the big question, but it is a massive problem and requires a multifaceted uh, response to it. Right. So nothing wrong with the dinner party or the guest speaker, but we're talking about Christians being part of uh, structural change. Absolutely. And it is often the case that those dinner parties and those services become catalysts to start thinking about larger systemic societal changes. Again, whether it is in the local church, in a denomination, in a neighborhood. Uh, and so I think those things have a phenomenal place. But I think we have to recognize the gifts of those things as well as the limits of them. Uh, and it's often the case that we focus just on the gifts, but don't see uh, the limits that those things reveal as well. Yeah, I, I just a, f a few episodes ago, we had Brenda Salter McNeil on the podcast. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with her. Love her. Amazing prophetic voice. And, um, and I come from an intervarsity background as well. So she, you know, was part of my formation oh, yeah. in those years of yeah. my life as a student. And all to say, she, she says that effective immediately or as of 2020, that she, changed her approach and she's actually she just recognized that she was trying to do this friendship stuff too much she was trying to be friendly or make it more palatable to a white ear and it wasn't mm -hmm. getting anywhere because it's a system that needs to change not just um yeah. you know well yeah as i've as i sort of joked you know a white person yeah, not say, just feelings have, here. yeah not just yeah. feelings or oh i have some black friends so i'm fine like that's not really <laughs> what we're talking about um and yeah. i think a lot of that for me we're talking about um there's nuance behind these things we're doing behind the things we're choosing to to be formed in or how even as leaders we're inviting people into these discussions but this whole podcast is about digital uh, or how digital, how the digital world affects us in every part of our life now. And uh, do you think this sort of the deeper life or the deeper formation of systemic change or issues are, can the digital world of fast now, uh, immediate, can, are they opposed to one another? Do you see that? Do you think that digital is against the deeply formed life or can they work together? No, I, 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 I do think, um, I, I think there are wonderful places of, of connection and places where it serves, um, what we're trying, what, you know, what I'm trying to do with the deeply formed life. For example, uh, I've seen the ways people can gather for midday prayers via, via, Instagram and Facebook Live and utilizing 
this technology. At the beginning of the pandemic for about four months, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I led a 20 to 30 minute midday prayer for you know, whoever came on. Sometimes it was 50, sometimes it was 200 people who would join. And I saw uh, the power of praying in community. Uh, and so most certainly uh, it's a tool that can be leveraged for the sake of a, a life that's formed deeply in Christ. Uh, I, I'd say the greater temptation is for it not to, however. Um, you know, Arthur Bowers wrote a book called Living Into Focus, and he's talking about focal practices and our relationship to technology. And he, he says that we, we must love technology enough to not just uh, appreciate the benefits it gives, but to recognize the limitations and the ways that it fragments us. Uh, and, and, and I think I, I, I think about technology from that dual perspective. There have been gifts. You know, tonight I'm leading uh, 100 of our congregants through uh, week three of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course. Uh, you know, uh, 100 people from my bedroom, it's wonderful. What a gift <laughs> it is to, to, to do that. Yet I do recognize the limitations of technology. I, I, I recognize the, the ways that we're not able to truly see someone uh, beyond tweets, beyond their profile. We, we, we don't see their whole story. I, I recognize the ways that uh, we can uh, speak our minds because of the, you know, what Thomas Friedman calls the democratization of technology. Everyone has access to it. Uh, I can speak my mind just like anyone else. And instead of it becoming a word of justice and compassion, it just becomes a matter of personal catharsis. So I'm going to say, get it off my chest, not because I want to move the needle forward towards justice, but because I just want some, to get something off my chest and get a few likes and retweets here and there. Uh, so I think technology uh, has more of the potential to do damage <laughs> if uncritically engaged. Uh, but I say that knowing that and have seen uh, the wonderful fruit that has come out of the digital world that we find ourselves increasingly in. And so are there any practices that you do or you're trying to do in your own life or in your family around uh, technology in your home or in your hand? Uh, one of the things that I'm trying not to do is um, be a, a commentator on everything social and political, uh, which, is in, uh, which is very difficult. And my temptation is to go in that direction. Uh, and so because of the lack of nuance, because of the inability to really unpack uh, the layers in a, various, in, a, in a given topic, I have found myself um, being misunderstood and not articulating myself in a way that's uh, serving others well. So I've tried to limit... Uh, by the grace of God and the help of my wife, <laughs> who says, don't send that. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I've, I've, I've learned to say, honey, I'm going to say this. And she goes, no, you're not. Uh, not today. Or, you better not. <laughs> not, not. Not today. Even this morning, for this morning, there was a post on, on Christian nationalism that I saw. And it's, the, it's my own discernment. And someone, I think, is a great post. And I, as I'm reading it, I'm going, now, I've just been in some, not quite hot water, but I preached a heavy message about the Capitol. 
um, you know, do I want to sit this one out right now right. and just, you know, uh, and take a break? And I decided, you know, I'm, I'm not going to share that because, again, I'm trying to hold the tension together of being a pastor as, and, and offering a, a, a priestly shepherding perspective and holding that with speaking truth and, and trying to hone in on a, a, a prophetic moment that we find ourselves in. So uh, that's been important. I, I mean, just the connection with people has been so critically important for me uh, using digital platforms and such. Uh, Zoom and all these other things has, has been such a gift for me. Uh, and so I'm very intentional with creating spaces to meet with people uh, with that. And um, yeah, those are a few things that come to mind, Joanna. Feel free to ask uh, from a different perspective if there's anything else you want to hear, but that's what comes to well, mind. Well, you know, some people uh, I some people have a rule of life or they say their phone goes to bed mm. at 8 p.m. I mean, there's, there's lots of... You know, I, I as a, I don't know if you know Enneagram, Enneagram yeah. 7 over here. So uh, fun, new, different is a high priority. As am I, oh, yes. are you? So yeah, I mean, maybe you relate to that. I find the rules of life really hard to integrate because by nature, I'm more free-flowing than a rules kind yeah, of girl. Yeah, I want to be everywhere, by the way, you know, <laughs> which, which, which is why I'll tweet about sports and censoring prayer and politics in a span of like 30 minutes, you know? Yeah, so, uh, but is also is, a, you know... A, a, a real illustration of how we have this illusion of being omniscient because the internet allows you That's to be right. in more like you can for the first time in history we can be in more than one place at a time in the last hundred years you know through the phone and right. and you know the earliest technologies of morse code and what you could be in more than one place at a time which has always been yeah, this god-like power that we don't know what to do with yeah i i think that's so well said and um, I, I have reflected on, you know, technology does offer the temptation to be omnipresent, omniscient, and, uh, uh, and omnipotent in the sense that I want to be everywhere, I want to know everything, and I want to use my words in such a way that generates power often over others. Uh, and that is the not-too-subtle temptation of technology, especially uh, in, in social media. So uh, for me... Uh, I, I have succeeded and failed uh, in this arena with uh, my phone, for example. There, there's, there are times where on our, so my Sabbath from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday where I'm not touching my phone and um, I'm, I'm fully present with my family. And then there are times on my Sabbath when I'm touching my phone <laughs> and I'm not present to my family. Yeah. So, uh, so I've been all over the map uh, with that there. But the best a season I had was a year and a half ago when I went on a four-month sabbatical and uh, got off all social media and had my wife change my passwords as well because I didn't trust myself uh, and I would find a way back in. Uh, so I have created boundaries at s certain points in my life to uh, avoid that level of engagement with technology. Yeah, kind of related to, to what we're talking about here. Um it's leading me into this, uh, the questions around, again, maybe it's back to what we need in leadership. I think I keep coming back to these, what do we need in our leaders right now? Because especially in a pandemic where everything has gone online and now we can get the best preaching, the best teaching from anywhere in the world. Uh, it was listening to a, a wise person talk about what we need then the local pastor teacher in most churches is never going to be as good as that in, you know, that global level national 
professional level communicator. So what we need there's is there's always somebody better. There's always someone better. So we need that local person um, more, the local leader in the local church. Um, more to be the pastor shepherd than the preacher teacher. It's great if they can preach teach, but that there's this longing for pastoral care. And I'm hearing you throughout this whole conversation talk about mm. shepherding and pastoring. But again, maybe it's back to uh, an earlier sort of thing I was was uh, harping on. It's just that that's not usually what we hire people to do in these roles. We hire the charismatic upfront communicator. The you know the great. Yeah. preacher. But then we're finding that person's out almost, not literally, but they're kind of getting out of a job because I can get that from anywhere. I need a pastor. Very true. And I think this moment calls, and this pandemic calls for uh, the creation or deepening of cultures of development and discipleship. Uh, for, for us, what does that mean at New Life? I mean, I, I lead a cohort of 15 people who are part of our school of formation. And these are leaders in our congregation that I spend three hours with uh, once a month. And um, we're focusing on the five values I write about in my book and how to deepen their lives in this. Uh, and we're also creating other spaces for this. So uh, as a pastor, I always recognize there's always gonna be a better communicator, a better singer, a better musician out there, um, a better worship experience, so to speak, out there. Uh, but what I can give is my presence. What I can give is my time. What I can give is uh, a contextualized way of forming souls in, in, in the way of Jesus. So um, you're absolutely right. I, I think this is calling to mind uh, the importance of what Jesus did with his disciples over a three-year period. It was slow. It was incremental. Uh, it was formal. It was informal. Um, and over the course of those three years of him deeply going uh, with them, uh, that ripple effect happened. And I think if, our, if pastors, if leaders can begin to invest in smaller groups of people and create cultures where that can happen, um, I, I think the church will have a significant future uh, if these things are increasingly taking place in our local congregations. So maybe as a, a last question, because in my mind, I want to talk to you a long time because uh, uh, there's much to learn on these topics. But people should just go read the book. That'll give them the more in-depth. <laughs> but, um, okay, you you got the sirens going in the background. You got, you know, because you're in Queens. You got kids at home. You got a, you got work to do. You got meetings. You got, you got podcasts to be on. Um, you know, for the... The people listening were all just normal people trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. Yeah. So is there a practice that, you know, that has really been something that, you know, I think of like, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is there something rather than a burden, another to do, is there something you might suggest to people who want this kind of life? Where could they start? Rather than a burdensome thing, what would be something to, to, to offer life to them? Yeah, you know, and hopefully this doesn't come across as too simplistic, but I, I, I do believe within a regular rhythm of, of Sabbath keeping, um, and if you ask me this question tomorrow, I might say something else, but I, I do think the regular 24-hour period where we are stopping our work, our paid work and our unpaid work, we are cultivating delight 
within our home. Uh, we are cultivating presence with one another. I think in that regular rhythm, weekly rhythm, th- there's something about that day that begins to impact the other six days uh, where, you know, my, my son, six-year-old son, every day, not, not, this is literally every day, he wants to wrestle with me. He, I mean, and for me, I'm going, come on, man, I, I don't want to do it. To, but for him, it's presence. Mm. It's, it's, it's this embodiedness. He wants to touch. He wants to wrestle. He wants connect. to, he wants to yeah. be seen. Uh, he wants to connect. He wants to attune with me, you know, all that stuff there. He wants to attach. And I've recognized what the Sabbath does for me beyond just that 24 hour period. It creates in me a consciousness, an awareness uh, that I'm made for connection. I'm made for attachment. I'm made for attunement. Uh, and if we can build that in, and I'm not saying every Sabbath we take together, you know, my, my kids don't just magically turn into angels <laughs> and, and their rooms don't get cleaned immediately on the Sabbath. That's magic. That's not the Sabbath, you know? That's Harry Potter. <laughs> That's something else. Um, uh, my, my, sometimes, sometimes, like, it feels worse on the Sabbath. So I don't want to uh, romanticize and uh, idealize this thing here. However, there's something there that has, I think, shaped us as a family and shaped me individually to be present uh, with with my son, with my 11-year-old daughter, and with my wife of 15 years. Uh, so I, w- I would say be- beginning there and wrestling with that Sabbath practice could be a significant catalyst uh, to kind of reshape our lives in the world that we live in. Yeah. Yes. Um, the seasons of my life that I have done it well, uh, it's been so rich and rewarding and the seasons where I haven't, I wonder why I'm anxious, burnt out, stressed, depressed, snapping at people or dissatisfied with my work or whatever. I I agree. Mm. Rich, thank you so much. If you want to point people at something, your, uh, your, your work, your life, your books, stuff that you love, where do you want to send people today? Yeah. I mean, if you went to richvelotis.com, you can see more about, uh, some of the content that I put out, uh, the deeply formed life and other projects that I'm working on. Uh, and, uh, on social media, it's just at Rich Velotis. So that's usually where Twitter and Instagram is typically where I'm testing out ideas mm-hmm. for sermons or projects. I'm seeing what sticks or I'm just talking about sports or something else like that. So, um, <laughs> but that's where folks can catch me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rich, for your time. It's uh, a rich conversation with you. <laughs> Good to be with you, Joanna. Thanks for the invitation. Rich, thank you so much for pastoring us, for leading us through the conversation um, in just such a shepherding way, an inspiring way uh, to just grow in our own depth. Next up on the podcast, we have Hannah Breckner. She's talking about fighting forward. Now she runs a global organization called More Love Letters that she too started when she was in New York City, not too far from Rich. And she began writing letters to strangers in lonely New York City. So she's going to be talking to us about creative writing, how to get your writing seen and out there, how to be inspired, but more than that, even how to 
to not just get your writing seen, but yourself seen. She's a TED speaker. She's an online educator, and she has been recognized by a lot of significant organizations for her skills in communication. So you're going to love and learn a lot from Hannah on the next episode. Thanks to Wycliffe College for sponsoring this podcast. Amazing partners and friends at the seminary that I attended, and they have a lot to offer you if you're considering more formal education. But hey, if you just want to check it out and even see what it might be like, I encourage you to go to wycliffecollege.ca slash wordmadedigital because they have some free swag for you and hey, free stuff is fun and people love getting mail. So why not? Uh, Let them know that I say hey. And also thanks so much to Compassion Canada. If you have been wondering about Compassion, maybe you want to get more info, you want to see some interactive dynamic content digitally about what they're up to right now or how you might get involved because you feel like you want to do something against all the negativity and hard stuff going on in the world. Go to compassion.ca slash good for more details about how you can do some good today. All right, my friends, see you next week. I will see you back here with Hannah Breckner, but I also want to see you on the Word Made Digital tutorials. I want to see you in that Facebook group called Digital Church so we can interact and connect outside of the podcast. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.